1: Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenger Prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with Thinking Faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a Silver Supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes, or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode.
2: I ended up, as you say, joining a Wiccan coven. Mm. So uh, what really happened was I still had a sense that this wasn't quite right. And then all sorts of strange things started happening to me. I had a dream about Jesus, and I thought, was that about? I wrote it down. It was so very particular. And then I really started to have a sense that, that I was being dragged out of Wicca by something or someone and being told not to do this anymore. And I felt like I knew who it was, but I didn't want to think about that.
3: <laughs> and the fact that I was up there after 101 days, it was the end. I asked for a sign and I received something that I never could have anticipated. I must say, if you bear in mind what I'd been doing for the last 25 years, I've been a wilderness rights of passage guide, I've been living in my tent. I'd seen many strange things out in the woods, but nothing out of the sky.
1: Welcome to the surprising rebirth of belief in God podcast with me, Justin Briley. It's another bonus holiday edition of the show today. Before we begin our next act of the documentary series, looking at the story that shaped us with Tom Holland. That's in the new year. A real treat for you today, though. I'm speaking to two wonderful authors, both of them poets and deep thinkers, who have both recently been on a remarkable journey through mythology, storytelling, and some extraordinary personal experiences to adult conversion to Christianity. They are Paul Kingsnorth and Martin Shaw. If you've been listening closely to our series so far, you will have heard them both pop up on previous episodes. And I've been promising to share their full stories in more detail. And that's what we're doing on today's show. My interviews with Paul Kingsnorth and Martin Shaw were actually recorded separately, but feature so much overlap between them. They make the perfect pairing. In fact, they both refer to each other a few times during these conversations. Interestingly, their separate and quite recent conversions have also taken them both down similar routes when it comes to the church tradition they now call home, as you'll hear. Just before we get going, I want to remind you, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God is also a book, and I was delighted that it was recently a finalist in Christianity Today's 2024 Book of the Year Awards. You can order the book and even get signed copies via my website, justinbrierly.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter and get chapter one for free. If you can support my work there, then as well as helping make this podcast possible, you'll also receive early access to the show each week, plus bonus content. Gold level supporters will also get signed copies of my books and the chance for a monthly catch up with me if you'd like it. Your support as we head towards 2024 does make a huge difference. Again, the links for the book, the newsletter and to support are at justinbriley.com or just click the links with today's show. I believe we are seeing the first signs of a rebirth of belief in God in our day. And we'll return next time to our documentary format, Tracing That Story. But the two conversations you'll hear today are, for me, signs of the first fruits of that wider openness and rediscovery of what Christianity can offer in the midst of our modern meaning crisis. Paul Kingsnorth is a celebrated author, poet and environmentalist who a few years ago surprised his readership by announcing his conversion to Orthodox Christianity, having spent some time as a Buddhist and even in Wicca. Paul now runs a lively substack, the Abbey of Misrule, where he shares his writings and is much in demand as a speaker and author. This interview was first recorded for the Reenchanting podcast presented by myself and Belle Tyndall and we join the conversation as I ask Paul how it feels to be writing so frequently now about his newfound faith. You're sort of working out your faith sort of in public as you go along. Well, I do seem to be doing that, yeah,
2: which is a bit <laughs> awkward. Um, that's the trouble with being a writer and then having something like this happen is that you write about it. And then more people ask you to write about it. And then they ask you to come on their podcasts, And then you have to sort of explain yourself even when you don't know what you're doing. So... So you have to be a bit careful. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, I, I don't know
1: any other way to do it other than sort of mm. writing it out and seeing what and, happens. And nature and the great outdoors has always sort of been part of that journey, as far as I can see, in terms of the way it's woven into your books and your poetry. And I think just growing up, you were kind of, you, you'd spent a lot of time in in nature, didn't you?
2: Yeah, well, that was that was my dad's responsibility, really. He used to take me on very long walks when I was a kid, like two, two weeks long. We'd walk the wow. Pennine Way or the Pembrokeshire Coast Path, which hey. I walked when I was very young. Lots of beautiful, long-distance paths all across Britain. And we do a lot of camping on the mountains. And so I was very immersed in it. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of London and then High Wycombe, so a very ordinary kind of <laughs> suburban life. But uh, the, So going out into the hills was an escape from that. Yeah. And this, these were in the days when you could actually go out and nobody had a smartphone. So when you went up a mountain, <laughs> you were up a mountain. Mm. You weren't someone tweeting on the top of it, right? So you you were, in, you were in the wilderness. Even in England, you could still get out into the wilderness to some degree so I had a real sense of there was something I always had a sense that there was something very powerful and very beautiful in nature and then Mm. later on at school I discovered Wordsworth and Wordsworth was kind of putting words to these feelings that there was something very profound so I was a sort of pantheistic nature lover for a long time
0: Mm.
2: I wouldn't call myself pantheistic anymore but I still have the same sense that there's something very divine and sacred and beautiful in the in the natural world And, Mm. and we we've got a big problem when we're so divorced from it. So that was just mm-hmm. the way that...
1: If I look back now, I could say I think those were religious yeah. experiences, actually, but yeah. I would never have put it in you, those uh, words. Though you did have a sort of semi-teenage atheist sort of
2: peer Yeah, I mean, think. intellectually I did. I definitely went through the, my sort of Richard Dawkins phase before I'd heard of Richard Dawkins. <laughs> you know, I thought it was very clever to... Explain to all the Christians why they were all so wrong, but (laughs) but that was just me being an idiot when I was when I was sixteen. So I sort of grew out of it. I mean, I sort of believed it. I I was somebody who I I was was spiritual but not religious, right? Uh So I I knew that organized religion was bad, but at the same time, I was never a a sort of dematerialized rationalist
1: person Mm. who thought that the the world was just a gene. You never thought nature was disenCHANTed. No,
2: I always thought, I always felt that there was something in the world that I could experience, and so you know, I was i was a lover of fantasy novels, and mm. I was very interested mm. in ghosts and, and the supernatural. Still am, actually, and so the, the, all the, the other apparent dimensions that I was sure existed. I was always interested in that, but I never, I would never have uh, associated it with God or anything like mm. that. That was not mm. something that I thought I was interested in. I didn't have any religious upbringing, so, mm. and if I had done, I wouldn't have been interested anyway because it didn't seem didn't seem relevant. So, and, and you know, when you're young, certainly back in the 80s that's the kind of thing you're rebelling against because yeah. that's the man. You're sticking it to the man. So yeah. so you walk away from that. But no, I, I've never been sort of disenchanted, actually, mm. in, in the sense I ever thought the world was just a, yeah. a material thing. So as I say, I think right from the beginning I've had a, a religious sensibility, actually. Mm.
0: That's really interesting. So what was it about, because obviously like, you're in a different place now, but back then, what was it about Christianity that you were like, that won't tick any of my boxes? Like, there's nothing about Christianity that will explain or define anything that I'm feeling sort of in nature.
2: Well, I don't know, really. I mean, it wasn't just Christianity. It was anything at all. I mean, my, my mm. best friend at school was a Muslim, and, um, you know, he was very committed to his religion in a sort of quiet way. And sometimes I'd go around his house, and he'd have all his sort of praying garb on, and, and I'd sort of look at him and think, mm it's a bit weird but you know it seems to make him happy but i thought i was much cleverer than all that and it just it wasn't look i mean I, I sort of had this when i grew up in england in the 80s there was a sort of church of englandy thing going on and that and so i there was always you know we had RE at school and um there were these two types of vicars that you would meet there was the very stuffy old victorian vicar who seemed to be coming from another world. And then there was the trendy vicar with the beard and the guitar who wanted to make Jesus your friend. And that was even worse. I much preferred the traditional vicar. I didn't want anything to do with the I'm trendy vicar.
0: i people I know.
2: Oh, there's lots around. And they'd, they'd come and do sermons about... I remember a particular one where someone wanted to compare Jesus to a bunch of bananas. I can't remember why, but was, it was terrible. I'd love to know was what awful. the And, you know, was. they'd always be quoting pop songs and things. It was mm. really bad. And it was just cringe. It was very cringe. And so you just thought... What has this got to do with me? And yeah. it just sounded like morality lessons. That's all it was. Jesus mm. says do this, and it's like, well, why do I need Jesus to tell me to do that? Mm. Uh, so it didn't it didn't seem relevant. But I wasn't looking for it. You know, yeah. I wasn't in that space yeah. where that was anything that interested me. So I could just have a good laugh about it. It wasn't it wasn't something I felt like I needed, and no one had ever explained to me what it was. So Christianity okay. or any other religion didn't seem. Sure and you know back in the day uh and probably still the 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 kind of the myth of progress is is our is our story and we're supposed to have transcended religion that's Mm a silly superstition that people used to have and we've all gone beyond that now (laughs) um and that's sort of what what i probably complacently
1: thought the world was you know Mm -hmm. so before we get to your own point at which you changed your mind your life was very much shaped by nature by your concern for it uh, ecology environmentalism and so on over time though i think you you became a bit disillusioned with the movement so do you want to talk us through sort of what happened on that level th- where where that passion mm. came from and but what what made you want to sort of
2: yeah well there's um, a couple of things really i mean if we go back to the sense that nature is that in nature you can see the divine which i think is now what i was going on mm. yeah um you know nature is the book of god um mm. If God is an artist, which I think he probably is, then nature is his artwork right mm. and, and we're part of it incidentally because we're natural too. So I could always I had a sense that that's what it was. That was what was going on. So I had a very inchoate sense that nature was a, was a sacred thing in some way. I wouldn't necessarily have used that word. but when I saw a forest being destroyed to make toilet paper, that felt like sacrilege. it still does. Mm. It seems like a, like a violent, stupid abuse of the world um, and a worship of Mammon and all of the other things that we would, we would see now. Um, And so I wanted to protect it. And so that led to me becoming an activist. And my writing got diverted into a long period of using my writing to try and and talk about that fiction, Mm. nonfiction, poetry, whatever, almost activist writing, but also just trying to explain the the importance of the sacred in nature. And so I was involved in the green movement for a long time. I suppose I became disillusioned, firstly, because it became clear that the the scale of the destruction wasn't something we were going to change. Right. and We're not going to stop the climate changing now at this point. Um, and, and that kind of activism doesn't work on a large scale. It can work on a small scale. but So there was a sense that it was sort of past the point of no return. But more than that, it was a sense that the Green Movement has gone down, the mainstream anyway, it's a very broad movement, but the mainstream of the Green Movement has gone down a very technocratic road in which uh, we have this thing called environmentalism and we talk about in very technical terms about biodiversity and carbon credits and and so we've we've taken this sacred divine manifestation of natural beauty and turned it into a sort of a a cold dead accounting thing where we've all got to be sustainable and reduce our carbon and And the solution to the problem is always more technology. It's always putting wind farms on the mountain. It's never about changing our lifestyle. It's never about having less. It's never about Mm. seeing nature as as something that is more than a. I was an environmentalist because I believe nature was was something that should be protected because it just obviously should because Mm. it was Mm. it was. I'd say that's a religious sensibility, but you don't have to have a religion to Mm. see that. It's Mm. a normal human reaction, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, and I still think that. And I think much of the environmental movement has become so obsessed with carbon and technology that it's got lost. It thinks that covering mountains in wind farms is a good solution because what it actually wants to do is sustain technological society going forward, making us all richer and wealthier. And actually, I think that what we need to do is have a lot less and live more simply. Um, But that's virtually impossible (laughs) in the society we live in. It's, It's been made very, very hard to do that. So I think it's about relationship. Our relationship with nature is very broken. Mm. and if we have a relationship with the rest of nature which just sees it as something that can be calculated and and sorted out with technology then we've done to nature the same thing we've kind of done to our culture which turned it into a machine Mm. so that was that was my disillusion Mm. really
0: Mm. yeah so I guess sort of to really oversimplify what you're saying but to make sure I've got it right in my head is that it's it's not about what the environmental movement at the moment is it's about using the machine in a sort of a better way rethinking mm. how we how we use it in a sustainable, way. Yes. In a sustainable yeah, right. way rather than thinking actually is it something to be is it a machine yeah, to be used exactly. in general or is it mm. something completely different yeah
2: exactly mm. I mean, what, what are we trying to do are we trying to create a giant technological digital society which doesn't produce carbon mm. and is mm. sustainable mm. or are we are we looking at our way of life our modern way of life which mm. I always have and said actually no, this is the wrong way to live yeah we're so disconnected from nature we're so atomized and isolated yeah. and dependent on our technology that we've broken a lot of relationships mm. human and non-human that's what i always felt mm. and a lot, a lot of environmentalists still obviously do feel that but mm. the the mainstream of the movement has and, gone and down it a feels like that's past. only sped
1: up in the last few years yeah it really
2: has uh, sped uh, up very okay. fast since covid i think everything's become even more digitised than before um we're
1: living on screens even more than before and the future is just taking us in that direction mm. and it's and, it's and the so e- direction if, if all we're doing in our environmental activity is kind of ensuring we can sustain this world. Yeah, exactly. So what do you want to sustain? (laughs) What do you want to sustain? I mean, what does
2: sustain mean? It just means make something that can keep going. So what are you trying to sustain? Are you trying to sustain the natural world? Or are you trying to sustain this This technological machine? Are you trying to sustain capitalism or progress or Mm. growth or wealth? What are you trying to sustain? And that's what sustainability actually now means is making modern Western capitalist technological society Uh, bulletproof almost shockproof you know get Mm. rid of the carbon use use something else instead but that's that's a technological question it's not a it's not a Mm. deeper one what's Mm. our actual relationship with nature is the question I want to answer
0: you talk about how that got weird after COVID, and that's such a shame because I remember in the midst of it it felt like oh this could be this Mm. could be a moment you know like really yeah, there was a moment right at the, the beginning wasn't there, yeah. Yeah, there was. and, yeah. and the clouds
1: that we we weren't
2: living that's in the true. smog and Absolutely. all that that's yeah. very true yeah. and there was a moment at the beginning where the cars weren't on the roads and people yeah. went home and spent and, time with their children <laughs> yeah. and you thought oh actually <laughs> look at all the stuff i'd forgotten yeah. about yeah exactly and seeing very how true.
0: nature reacted to us shrinking mm. Was such a beautiful oh, thing, good. and we were all so enchanted with it yeah. at the time. So it's such a shame that that hasn't. Yeah, then
2: we got straight back on the bandwagon. We got didn't straight we? back, back <laughs> on it. Yeah, we're not very good at
1: learning those sorts. No, of lessons, we're, we humans are very bad at learning from their mistakes. On there, I think that's a yeah. good lesson from history. Unfortunately, <laughs> we do yeah. do that. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating, and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself, or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. Talk to us about your own journey when it comes to faith, though, Paul, because uh, I know that you have have sort of had a religious sense about you uh, over your adult life, and it's had expression in lots of different ways, even um, sort of Wicca. At mm. one point, you were sort of out in the woods doing sort of was, nature worship and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, I think you've also, you know, uh, had a period where Buddhism has been kind of quite central to your life. Mm-hmm. So, w- having gone through all of those different ways of engaging, what what made you arrive at Christianity? Well, I suppose that this sense of the sacred or the divine or this
2: religious sense, whatever you call it, which has always been with me, um, it just became stronger as I got older. The more I thought about, if, if you if you approach. Say you're looking at the environmental crisis and you start saying, Mm. well, why is this happening then? You sort of cycle through a lot of questions. And if you keep asking the questions, you you say, well, maybe it's politics. Maybe we need someone Mm. else in power. And then you realize it's not that. And Mm. then you say, well, maybe we need a revolution. Well, no, that's not going to happen. And and it probably would make it worse. (laughs) Maybe it's about capitalism. Well, it is, but it's bigger than that as well. Maybe it's about industrialism. Yeah, it sort of is that, but it's bigger than that as well. You keep going down and down and down. And you realise that, as as I say, I think that what the crisis is not technological or economic or political; it's it's cultural, which means actually it's spiritual because it's about our relationship with the rest of life, mm. and and what we think a human is, and what we think nature is, and what we think the world is, and then that's a theological question, that's mm. a spiritual question. So, by the time I was forty or so, I thought, well, I, I think I need to go and I need a I need a spiritual path here. Mm. I think I need to to learn from the wisdom of the ages because I. You know, there's something bigger going on. So yeah, I I the first place I went was, was Buddhism, which is often the case with Western people these mm-hmm. days because Buddhism, Buddhism is very accessible. So I spent about five or six years studying Zen and practicing Zen and Chan Buddhism, which was very, very productive. And I did learn a lot and I had a lot of experiences. I mm-hmm. especially learned a lot about the nature of the self. Buddhism is very good at teaching you the, the nature of the kind of the false self. Mm. But there was also something missing from it. Um, and I wasn't sure what it was, but I sort of realized to my horror that maybe it was God. <laughs> I thought, no, this can't be true. No. Or I'd, so I didn't want to use that word, but I thought, well, I, I don't know. I, I sort of wanted to worship something, which I thought was a bit weak of me. Um, but there was a lack of relationship somehow in Buddhism for me. There wasn't a right. relationship to the... I felt like there was a source of something. There was something big going on, and mm. I didn't have a relation to it with Buddhism. So. so at the same time, I was studying. I was reading mythology. I was... Spending, going on four-day retreats in the woods, four days of fasting in Dartmoor um, in the woods, and doing all sorts of other things as well. And eventually I ended up thinking, well, look, I can, I, maybe I need a nature religion, right? Because I love mm. nature. I should have mm. a nature religion. That That might work. So I've always been very interested in sort of magic and things. So I ended up, as you say, joining a Wiccan coven. Mm. So a sort of new age witchy thing for a while. For a couple of years I did that. And that was interesting as well. I learned some things from that. But Wicca is, is a sort of false, made-up religion with with lots of different aspects of things cobbled together from kind of the Masons and and uh, Alistair Crowley and all sorts of other stuff like that. So some of it's interesting, but some of it's a bit sinister. Mm-hmm. You Don't realise that till you're in it. Not deliberately so, but I think that that kind of thing is playing with powers that the people involved in it don't necessarily realise they're playing with. Okay. But anyway... Um, What really happened was i still had a sense that this wasn't quite right and then all sorts of strange things started happening to me i had a dream about jesus and i thought what was that about i wrote it down it was so very particular then i started having sort of Weirdly, I kept meeting Christians everywhere. So I felt like something was <laughs> happening, right? So uh, I felt like all these Christians were coming towards me. At the time I was running this writing class and suddenly I was had all these priests saying, Can you help me with my writing? Don't
0: you hate it when that happens? <laughs>
2: Terrible. I know, they're everywhere. And then, then I then I do things like discovering that friends of mine who I hadn't known were Christian were actually Christian and, and then all sorts of stuff and then it was just suddenly it was Christians everywhere. And I was going, What's going on? <laughs> and then I really started to have a sense that, that I was being dragged out of Wicca by something or someone, mm. and being told not to do this anymore. And I felt like I knew who it was, but I didn't want to think about that. <laughs> but it, a lot of things happened to me, to mm. cut a long story short, and it was partly a sort of intellectual uh, dissatisfaction with what I was doing, but more than that, it was actually a lot of experiences. Uh, mm. I felt like I was being really forcibly dragged towards Christianity. And, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote about this very famously, mm. didn't he, for mm. one, uh, fearing the, the approach of the one who he desperately desired not to meet it was a bit like that yes so in the end I just thought Oh maybe I'm a Christian damn <laughs> this is bad I don't want to be a Christian don't like Christians don't like this this is bad but you know then of course I started to look into to Christianity and, and start reading the real getting into the real meat of it mm. and then of course you realize that it's not what you thought it was and that the depth of it and the cosmology of it is really not what you thought you learned at mm. school Mm. And it's very badly communicated to us, unfortunately. The the, the, the trendy vickers didn't have the whole story. I I appreciate their efforts, (laughs) but the attempt to make Christianity relevant just makes it less relevant. Um, But anyway, so I just started looking around and walking into churches and sitting at the back and things. Eventually, uh, I walked into an Orthodox monastery, a new Orthodox monastery that's opened in Ireland. The first one, very small, just a few minutes from my home actually and uh i went to the divine liturgy and i'd never experienced anything like that before and after you've been to two or three you can't stop and uh here i am now i turn out to be an orthodox christian and you know it's interesting there's a friend of mine martin shaw who you've spoken to before Mm. and uh, he's also recently become an orthodox christian after Mm. 10 years of being a sort of pagan storyteller i know martin very well and somebody asked him recently they said why did you convert to christianity then and he said, I don't think I did. I think I just realized I was a Christian all along. Mm. And I kind of feel the same, actually. That's I kind of feel like when you join the Orthodox Church, people say, welcome home. It's very nice. Mm. And it's a weird thing in one mm. way, because I'm a member of the Romanian Orthodox Church. Mm. And in my home, I'm not Romanian. Yeah. But in another way, in a deeper way, it does feel like that. It feels yeah. like you've come back to something you sort of always knew. It's a very prodigal mm. son. You know, you yeah. sort of feel like you're coming back to something. I did anyway. So yeah. I don't feel like I've converted to something weird and new and strange at all. I feel like I've gone, oh, this was yeah, what it was this, all is about. I, yeah. this is yeah. where I came from. This is what I've been circling around yeah. my whole life. So it's a strange feeling. And I'm quite a new Christian. Only two or three years I've been in the church. So I'm still very much feeling my way, mm-hmm. you know, but it's...
0: Jump straight uh, into a two-year-long theological study. throw yourself
2: you. <laughs> in. You have to go in at the deep end. When you're my age, you know, it's like a, I've got... I wish, I wish I'd started 30 years ago, but anyway... Mm. there's
0: so much interesting about what you just said so many interesting parts i think what that trust that you have had in yourself in your Mm. inner monologue that's really interesting i think that might if anyone's listening to this who's not a christian as christians we kind of take that quite seriously this idea that god speaks you know in that this whole you know deep to deep type Mm. sort of thing but if you're not a christian that's quite quite countercultural to try to sort of listen to your inner monologue and think there's a real weight here and actually this might be more than just me this might be some kind of external force Mm. trying to communicate with me
2: yeah I think that's the countercultural bit isn't it because we're we're very good at listening to our inner monologue when it's about us you know (laughs) we're very good at a sort of psychotherapizing individualistic sort of moralistic deism thing but but yeah, the notion that there might be a God and he might be talking to you. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I, I sort of resisted that idea for a long time. Sounds a bit mad. Mm. And also maybe I'm, maybe I'm hugely self-absorbed and I think I'm a prophet or something. And what's going on? Why would God mm. be talking to me? You know, there mm. was all that going on as well. But I don't know. I've always just thought if, you, if you're going in a... I mean, look, I just sort of started praying at some point in a crude way and just saying, okay, well, if you're real, tell me what to do. Show me what's going on. Tell me Mm. where I should go then. Um, I think it's sort of the only thing you can do. But I I think for a long time, I'd just been looking. I'd been searching for so long. I just thought, I've got to follow Mm. whatever comes. What's Mm. the worst that can happen? I'll just be wrong, and then I can go and do something else. But... Was but yeah, it? You, what, you, what, it turns out that if you start praying, you get an answer, <laughs> which is actually quite
1: quite frightening. So that was
2: what happened, I it, think.
1: It reminds you a bit of that, that C.S. Lewis passage, I can't remember it very well, but where he, he sort of talks about the fact that a lot of people want a kind of God that's a sort of impersonal force or a mm. sort of God in their own mould that yes. doesn't challenge them too much. But then when people discover this kind of, untamed living god mm. on the end of the line that's that's a very kind of different concept yeah, because yeah. that that suddenly means oh i'm not in the driving seat anymore mm. there is something beyond me aslan is not a safe lion uh, yes <laughs> it's, <just laughs> not lion, you know? it's not a
2: tame yeah, lion he's yeah. not a yeah. tame lion exactly no yeah. that's that's the thing you see so it's a radical kind of discovery that prayer's a thing you know mm. prayer actually mm. is a real thing because again at school it was it's a funny thing i did mean, it's I'm not really blaming anyone, but, you know, no one taught you what any of this was, really. You mm. just go to assembly and they go, right, let us pray. And you go, well, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do? I just say these words. Mm. But, yeah, actually ha- trying to talk and then thinking, like, something might actually have happened as a response yeah. to that, as a result of that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a
1: I, weird, I'm very complicated thing, fairy. actually. I've, I've got kids, and, and the thought often goes through my mind, you know, when they're at school, and they do happen to go to a, a Church of England school. Mm-hmm. But lots of their friends obviously had absolutely no faith and don't yeah. come from church families and so on. And, and I sometimes wonder, going through those, you know, things, prayer, you know, your hymn or whatever. What impact does it make? Obviously, on you, it, it mm-hmm. had very little impact. And yet, at the same time, I don't want that to just disappear entirely from our cultural well,
2: experience. Yeah, I mean, for this is people. interesting,
1: you know, because you say it had little impact,
2: but I'm not sure that's true. Um, I, did, it any, I didn't think it had any impact at the time. I wasn't interested in right. it. But it did give me a foundation in what Christianity broadly was. Yes. I had to learn the Lord's Prayer at school. Yeah. So I always mm-hmm. knew that. And I'd listen to the Gospels. I wasn't very interested, but I'd hear the stories. Mm-hmm. And I had to do the Nativity play and sing some hymns. And that gives you an under, a basic foundation of Christianity, actually, um, which I don't think is available for a lot of children these days, actually. Yes. I think that the younger generation often now haven't even got that foundation. So stuff we took for granted, like, you know, a quote from the Bible or something mm. that Jesus said, regardless of whether you're a Christian, it's kind of in the language, it's like yeah. Shakespeare, mm. it's mm. here. Mm. Um, so I think it did have an impact on me, it didn't, at the time, I didn't think it had any spiritual impact on me, but it gave me a sort of ground of just understanding what that mm. story is, mm. that I could then come back to later and go, right, okay, I want to dig deeper into it. But I sort of, at least I knew the broad outline of what, mm. the, what the picture was. So I think it mm. did have an impact in that way, actually. Yeah. Yeah, a cultural, you know, gives you a cultural grounding. Even if you reject it, it's still there. Yeah. If you want to come back, you can come back. Mm. So, yeah, I do think that matters, actually.
0: Mm. So do you think there are more people, many more people who sort of have always been a Christian mm. <laughs> in sort of what you said, those people who, despite their expectations, only wants because, you mm. know, people will be reluctant, that it's already within them.
2: Well, I suppose we'll find out, won't we? I mean, what I think is if God is real, then God is real and that means everybody has a longing for God and actually I think that's true because I think even if you look at it anthropologically historically every culture in the world is built around God in some way they may have a different understanding of it they may be wrong or right about this that or the other but they're all focusing at some point Mm. on where they think the divine is it's always at the heart of every culture except this one which has decided to pretend that's not real for a bit Mm. but that's not going to work because Mm. I think humans have a need for it they have a need for God Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's where we're supposed to be orientated. So if that's true, then we're going to want to look in that direction. Even though the whole culture is telling us that that's nonsense. Sort of, we sort of know it isn't. But we don't, it's very difficult to know where to look in this society. Mm. But I do think possibly that that's true. Because since I started writing about this and talking about it, I didn't really intend to go around writing and talking about Christianity all the time. (laughs) It just seems to have happened. And I thought... Well, maybe I should do it because maybe that's what I'm supposed to do with this mm. writing thing I have. Maybe that's what God wants me to do, or maybe I should just do it to help others out. But since I've started doing it, I've had a lot of letters and emails. I can't even answer them all from people who are in a similar sort of position on a similar yeah. journey, often coming from a similar place, who said, yes, much to my horror and surprise, I'm also attracted to Christianity. What do I do? And I can't really help, but except by telling the story. And just by talking like this... Other people can look and say, well, yes. "Yeah, maybe it's all right. Maybe
1: it's not just me. Maybe I'm not mad." We, we spoke you know, to Francis Bufford earlier in the series, mm. and, and mm. he said something quite similar. Well, he, he basically said sometimes it's about having people who aren't the people you'd expect maybe mm. to start talking about Christianity yeah. that that suddenly opens and it, it up for people. Actually. And and um, he obviously you know is a brilliant writer and mm. uh, and so on. And and I think. It was a refreshing when suddenly he wrote about Christianity mm. in his book Unapologetic and, and in a very different, unique way yeah. as well. Um, uh, and we've also mentioned Nick Cave a few times on this podcast. <laughs> mm. a few times. But if you're listening, Nick, the, the door's still open <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, come to to, on. to the We've mentioned like six um, times now. <laughs> um, but again, someone who's who I think uh, you know very influential pop star, rock star, but seems to kind of just be voicing what I think a lot of people are feeling deep mm. down. No, there's Maybe there is a god. Maybe yeah. maybe this mm. this feeling, mm. and I kind of also recognizing, like so many people, that as you say, we're the only culture that has kind of banished God, mm. but we're still no less religious. We're just getting religious about different things, yes. mm. yeah, and exactly. and it's not like that that instinct goes away; it just no. gets subverted in some way. No, I mean, what what are you seeing in terms of that? Do you would you say, I don't know. Do you think we're ready for the real God story to come back in our culture? Well that's a good question isn't it
2: um you know Chesterton said Chesterton was arguing with Marx he said it's not true that religion is the opium of the people it's irreligion which is the opium of the people because if you don't worship something beyond the world you will worship the world mm. and above all you will worship the strongest thing in the world which mm. is true so it's true you get your religious gaze uh directed towards well this is what idol worship is right that you you start worshiping the world instead what we worship is money we worship wealth above all i think we worship technology Uh, and you can see where that's going that's going towards transhumanism artificial intelligence the attempt to create our own god to be god in fact that's where we're going um and i think that the more that that is openly the case the more that we try to remake human nature remake nature itself behave like gods um the more people are going to start saying, well, hang on a minute, what what actually is happening here? The more you have to ask this question, what is a human? What is nature? What is the Mm. world? And that's going to focus a lot of people's minds. And I think it already is. I think people will be ready for actual serious Christianity again, you know, full strength Christianity, not the weak worldly version, (laughs) the real thing. And I think it's starting to happen. I can feel it, especially amongst younger people. Interestingly, in my generation, younger people you know, I've, I've heard so many stories. I mean, even somebody like Jordan Peterson, who isn't a Christian, although we can't stop talking about it for some reason. I don't know what's going on there, but he'll give lectures about the uh, two hour lectures about the book of Genesis and it'll fill up with 20 year olds. You know, yeah. that would never have happened
0: mm. 20
2: years ago, even yeah. five years ago. There's something going on that's pulling people towards towards it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it seems to have happened to me. <laughs> And I think it's happening to a lot of other people as well. So yeah, I think it's like the more worldly we become, the more we worship the world, the more we start to do increasingly dark and disturbing things, trying to live forever, upload our minds into the mm-hmm. cloud, create mm-hmm. new life itself. The more this this sort of pull towards actual faith, an actual God rather than the false one, yeah. is gonna is gonna be stronger. Mm-hmm. I think. I'm feeling that's happening already.
0: Mm-hmm. And you. You said then a full strength Christianity. Mm. You've found yourself, you've found a pull to quite an ancient form of Christianity. Mm. What is it that you're finding there that you don't see in like sort of more modern Christianity? Um, Christianity, again, to mention a previous um, guest, Tom Holland, Mm. Christianity that you said has bled itself of enchantment. um, I think you might've called it a bleached out Christianity. Mm. I think Um, so, yeah, it feels like that. Can you talk us through sort of what you're finding?
2: It's a funny thing because I, you know, I'm English, so maybe I should have been Anglican, and I, I live in Ireland, so maybe I should be Catholic. And I was looking around at all the churches. So you become a Christian, you think, well, what's the church then? There seem to be about a hundred of them. What's the actual real one? Where should I be going here? So I was praying a lot about that, but I was also going to churches and sitting in them and seeing what happened. And yeah. eventually, as I said, I went to this Orthodox monastery, and that was a very powerful experience. I met a priest there and I talked to him, and I just kept going and going and going, and the. There was an experience in the divine liturgy in the Orthodox Church, which I haven't had anywhere else. The Orthodox liturgy is usually at least two hours long. You stand up all the way through, right? Um, The Orthodox, say the Orthodox Easter service will start at 10 p.m. and finish at 2 a.m. No messing around with the Orthodox. Sometimes people ask me the difference between Eastern and Western Christianity. I say Eastern Christians have better beards and stronger legs. Um, That's fundamentally the difference. Um, But, you know, there's something, Orthodox Christianity comes from the East. Uh, And and it's it's two things have happened there. Um, Firstly, it's been persecuted for much of its history by either by Islam or later by communism, which has made it very strong. Paradoxically, Mm. it hasn't Mm. had very much power. Mm. And secondly, it hasn't had to deal with modernity. It didn't have a reformation, didn't have the Enlightenment, Mm. didn't have the Renaissance. So it hasn't been sort of had to hasn't been sort of hacked about by humanism, basically, (laughs) in the same way. And so, yeah, and it also has a much more mystical core, I think, than Western Christianity. Obviously, there's mysticism in Western Christianity too, but generally, I think it's it's ended up, especially in the Protestant countries, much more moralistic and rationalistic. And that was the sort of Christianity that I a proud, came across at school. I think it's a, it's a sort of a list of moral rules, mm-hmm. and obviously, the moral rules matter in Christianity, mm-hmm. but they're not the heart of the thing. They mm-hmm. exist for a reason, and. I found in the Orthodox faith, firstly, something which hasn't been compromised and muddied around by the modern world, but also something which can take you really much deeper than I've ever experienced in in the Western Church. And I think, especially in the West since the 60s, the Church, all the Churches, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, all of them have tried to, I don't know if they've tried to compromise with modernity, but they've tried to make the church more appealing. You know, mm. we've got to, that, that's the trendy vicars, right? And, yeah. and I don't blame them. It's a, it's a sort of rational thing to do. They think, well, everyone, no one's interested in the church anymore. Maybe if we make, it, if we make the hymns sound like pop songs, people mm. will come back. But they won't because they just want the pop songs. <laughs> and then the church looks weak. So weirdly enough, the more the church has tried to speak to or adapt itself to secular modernity, the more it's just seemed like a compromised thing. Mm. that doesn't have anything alternative to say. Whereas Mm. now, I think when people are looking at Christianity, they say, look, what's the alternative to the world? Which is actually what Christianity is supposed to be, right? St. Paul says, don't be conformed to this Mm. world. The church is not the world. It's in the world, but it's Mm. not of the world. Mm. So we're not supposed to be conformed to the world. And now that the world is becoming so awful in so many ways, people will say, well, where's the temple of God? What's, What's happening in the temple of God? And if it's the same thing as is happening in the world, if it's just activist politics or you know pop songs or whatever then why would you go what has it remained if it's the word of god it should remain unchanged right and it should mm. be strong and it should be beautiful as well the other thing about orthodoxy is, is there's a great deal of beauty in it the icons mm. and the, the incense it's a kind of full bodily experience that really yeah. feels very powerful so there's something in there that's that i think we have lost in the west or given away
1: You can find links to Paul Kingsnorth and the full interview on the Reenchanting podcast from today's show notes. My next guest has a story that overlaps with Paul Kingsnorth in several ways, as you'll hear. Martin Shaw is a renowned storyteller and mythologist. With his full beard, broad-rimmed hat and a twinkle in his eye, he looks the part of a travelling bard of old. But in the last couple of years, he has had his own quite extraordinary story to tell, too. After many years as a poet, author and teaching others through the West Country School of Myth, Martin had an encounter that confounded all of his expectations. We pick up the story as I ask Martin about his love of storytelling and mythology. Is that something that was there from early on, this sense of wanting to explore mythology, folklore, stories and so on? Yes,
3: and I think probably not having a telly was a great contributor to that, because if I I could have got my hands on the television more regularly, I don't think that I would have spent as much time in the woods as I did. I don't think I would have spent as much time reading books and listening to stories and being around it. But I'd had an experience where I'd been walking with my dad early one morning and he'd recited a poem, and as he recited it, the sun came up. Now, in my five-year-old mind, this was an extraordinary act of sympathetic magic. My dad had done that. (laughs) Certain words, beautifully expressed, bumped into everything around us and caused a reaction. Mm -hmm. And I used to see the same thing when my mum was reading me a story at night. I'd see the moon come out, and in my little associative mind, I thought there was a relationship, and I think there probably still was, between the movement of the moon and the words of my mum.
1: So that was the way it expressed itself when you were growing up. Did did you find yourself drawn in? You know, as you you know began reading for yourself to sort of storytelling fantasy literature. What was your own engagement with with the stories that people tell?
3: Well, I I, I didn't know that storytellers existed in the se- in in the fashion that I am one today but there were well-meaning ladies in libraries that would read you a story but there's a difference between being read a story and being told a story there's a difference between a recital and an imagining and it was the imagining that i was excited about i went to i went to a church uh called upton vale baptist church in torquay in the mid 70s and i remember Often, you know, I would have been whisked off to uh, Sunday school, but there was a day where I remember somehow I was trapped in the adult sermon. And I could (laughs) see that the sermon was of great, you know, substance for folks several generations older. But I had this fantasy that Aslan was going to burst through a window, grab the preacher by the scruff of the neck, not kill them, but just generally shake up the oxygen of the room. Uh, and so I, I was at the, the Christianity and the stories I was experiencing through Christianity, I think in reflection, Justin, there was a bit of a disconnect between the kind of radical, actually countercultural message of Yeshua, of Jesus, this strange Galilee druid, and the incredibly sort of domestic and rather urban and settled setting that had encrusted itself, around this very strange uh, uh middle eastern
1: mystery religion mm, mm. so you already i suppose at a young age sort of were, were sensing something that that what you were being showed in the church that you perhaps grew up in didn't feel like the the wild untamed kind of story that that you obviously already had a sense that christianity might might be about
3: yeah, I mean, I did, I did love the stories. I think, you know, I remember David and Goliath and things like that. But they, they didn't do to my soul what a fairy tale would do or a great mm. myth like the Odyssey. And Jesus Himself was speaking of such a high bar, of such sort of uh, interior discipline. <laughs> I knew I would be, I would be terrible at that. I used to describe Christ as the first the first alien that ever visited Earth, you know, because he seemed so unusual to me. He didn't seem like the other gods that I encountered in stories. So I think, yeah, it it did. It seemed uh, an urban, well-masticated, well-chewed mm. faith with a tremendous emphasis on belief. But the trouble was when I was, you know, six... I didn't believe in anything for more than a few minutes. I didn't even believe entirely that I was a boy. I thought I may be a (laughs) hawk uh, or I I, I was, you know, some goblin that lived in the forest. And so actually that kind of uh, evangelical pressure froze my artistic soul, to be honest. Mm. And another thing is that although I appreciate now, actually, the... The, the the you know Baptists can really deliver a good sermon. There's real content. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now I, pr- I appreciate it now, but I was not aware of a contemplative tradition. I wasn't aware of the saints really. I wasn't aware of wild old women living in the desert. I wasn't aware of of the first really the first three hundred years of Christianity and the strangeness of that story. And yeah. for some reason, for me, although obviously the traditional, um, a de- traditional description of the church is the body of Christ, I used to look out the window and think, well, is a meadow of wildflowers the body of Christ? Is a mountain range the body of Christ? Is the bottom of the sea part of the body of Christ? What does Creator actually think? Is Christianity allowed to exist in the wild places
1: as well as the breathlessly human... <laughs> Yes, so you were kind of experiencing this this disjunct between the sort of dis- domesticated version, as it were, of Christianity and this the sense that you had that there might be something else out there, something bigger and wilder. Um, I mean, you've already intimated that you did grow up that in that sense in a in a Christian setting. Um, but did that faith just kind of not stick for the kinds of reasons you've described? Did it sort of obviously you 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 had you know loving parents, as far did. as I understand, yeah, yeah. who wanted I'm sure to pass on the faith as best they could but for whatever reason it it doesn't qu- didn't quite fit your personality and that artistic soul that you you describe
3: you know wonderfully Justin I'm realizing as you're saying this to me that my parents they did pass it on you know the message was received it just took just took half a century <laughs> uh but yes at that time at that time it seemed tamed Unromantic um, uh, book laden, you know I it, again you know, the people of the book I, I, I wanted to look out, I knew I knew I had a feeling for God, but mm-hmm. I knew that I needed to feel it in the in the face of a flower or an animal or the movement of the weather or a dream. Now of mm-hmm. course, there'll be many Christians rolling their eyes at this point and saying that's all in the Bible. But certain parts of the Bible are highlighted more than others. Mm. And I just hadn't, that hadn't really sifted to consciousness. So actually, by the time I was 17, I remember my last day in church, actually, when I thought, no, I, I need to go walk about. And I remained on walkabout for, I suppose, another uh, best part of 35 years.
1: Yeah. What were the stories that were capturing your imagination then? W- who, you mentioned a few, you know, the Odyssey and others. Where, where did you find that, that, that those sparks of joy were to be found? Well, funnily enough, uh,
3: I found those sparks of joy initially from the very man that wanted me to be a Christian. It was my dad, because once he'd been preaching and we were walking home, he'd say, well, you know, in this forest, you know, Morgana Le Fay is just behind a tree. And isn't this a little bit like the King Arthur stories? So my, you know, my my heart was kind of, Wired romantically very early and without any effort whatsoever, it was just so natural. I mm. swooned into it. I wasn't pressured into it. That's a good. Uh, I'm going to remember this. I <laughs> swooned into it. I wasn't pressured into it. It was a movement of the heart, not f- fear laden. You know, fear. I didn't. I didn't smell sulphur and that I was going to be chucked into, you know, the the, the ninth rung of hell. Uh, so then I got older and. I realised that Irish stories, uh, stories of someone called Finn McCool, Russian fairy tales—they actually had tremendous complexity to them. And there's that the dichotomy that some Christians have, where all everything you could possibly need in terms of how to live exists within the Bible, and everything outside is to be, be viewed with suspicion or potentially even Luciferic. That was not the atmosphere that I grew mm. up in. I grew up in much more of the perspective of Augustine, which is, you know, all all truth is God's truth, yeah. and actually radiating through the strangest stories for many thousands of years before the advent of these 33 years that we have lived in the, the shock of ever since. Mm. There were all sorts of pinpricks of eternity. So to be honest, unconsciously, I started to gravitate towards the grace
1: that was in all of these other stories. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're you're obviously an imaginative, artistic soul. I almost have this vision of you, Martin, as a sort of wild man of the woods, <laughs> kind of you know, just exploring nature, inviting others into this journey. You've obviously had though, you know, you, you've you've gone the academic route. You've done the PhD. You've um you've obviously established a school. Uh, of mythology and storytelling as well What were you, have you been hoping to pass on In the decades that you've had that And I know that there was one specifically Very important encounter I think in Snowdonia Where the mythic imagination really Came to be central yes. for your life Do you want to just t- talk, talk us through that Because I think that's important Before we kind of get to the, the second If you like epiphany in your journey
3: Yes, well I had gone up at 23 I'd gone up to a mountain in Snowdonia Let's 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 call it a big hill mm. uh called Cut Idris. And around that area I had fasted for four days and nights. And that, although to some people listening, they'll think, well, what on earth is that? It's no great mystery that all around the world for thousands of years, certainly Christians included. It's often a very healthy thing for a period of time to get away from your job description, to get away from your family, to get away from all of that. Sit quietly on a hill till you locate the still small voice. I mean, you know, Jesus's relationship to towns, are very, it's very interesting to you. He's always slipping out. <laughs> mm. He's always slipping out early in the morning. That was one of the reasons. I, I always noticed that these. these, you know how, Compressed the Bible is in its language. So absolutely. Uh, but I always noticed that. So I, I went through a huge epiphany. I was a musician. I returned my record contract and then actually lived in a tent for four years at the very end of the 1990s, just before there would have been a phone in my pocket or an email address. It was still time when you could actually disappear. So I lived in this black tent to to digest quite what had happened to me. Now, as you're talking to me, Justin, I'm thinking about something. I'm thinking about mystical experience and theoretical knowledge. And I think the reason why I went the way of a mythologist and I got a doctorate and the rest of it was because I needed, I needed to comb through the encounter that I'd had in a language that was communicable to other people. Mm. because actually I was rendered speechless by it. And so that's, I've been thinking about this recently, how God God places you in positions to learn things long before you realize the big picture of why you're going through this. Mm. And so I was just led into mythology. I was led back into the stories of my youth to explain an ineffable Uh, mystery that I'd entered up there in the woods and then I trained in that work for eight years and so now I have the full gamut of on the one hand leading wilderness fast of which I'm about to lead my first Christian one uh, in Mm. August specifically for Christians right the way through to postgraduate courses and people that are looking from a much more poetical or
1: theoretical basis of Mm. mind. And during this period of your life how did you regard Christ as another myth among many what was the sort of way in which you you sort of thought about that he's, he's definitely not another
3: he's not a myth amongst many uh, and when I when sort of you know I'm sorry to be you know when people's knowledge of mythology is primarily being plucked from YouTube mm. when there isn't a great deal of how people can say with a kind of great wave of the hand well of course you also have osiris and you have dionysus and all of this stuff speaking as someone that has a new version of the bacchae coming out euripides play on dionysus very soon i can tell you that those figures although there's an ornamental connection through things like the vine and wine you're never in a million years going to encounter something like the sermon on the mount coming out of dionysus's mouth i found christ disturbing um there's a poet I know whose name I, I won't mention her, but you'd know who she was. But she said to me, she said, I think in a very strange way, Christ is the last of the Greek gods and turns everything before sort of on its head. And of of course, you know, just stating the obvious, of course, Jesus was a Jew, but I knew what she was getting at. I knew mm-hmm. what she was getting at. So actually I viewed I viewed I knew enough to know that the Christ story didn't fit neatly with any of the other mythologies that i was exploring although there was connective thread mm. what disturbed me about the gospels was that it sounded awfully like they had a postcode to them it, do you know what i'm saying it, yeah. it's very site specific you don't uh-huh. get this in the gnostic gospels the gnostic gospels mm. were all floating around like astronauts and it's the same old same old if you've read mystical content you've read that before Okay. But the, the the Gospels are gnarly and strange and they're all happening in an area that you can walk around. You know, you can walk around with a map. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's,
1: that's a little bit too much like real life for me. I better stay away from it. <laughs> so real life came calling, though. Why don't you take us up to what happened a couple of years ago now? Um, because this is both... I guess a spiritual, intellectual, experiential journey that you went on. Um, may maybe take us, yeah, from wherever you want to in that story and 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 how Christ presented himself in a very real way to you, Martin. Yeah, for
3: sure. Well, let's go back. It's it's now many years have passed. I'm at the end of my forties. Uh you know, providentially, I've ended up earning a living, doing something I really love. I've been a I've been a tutor at Stanford. I've written. I think by then I'd written about sixteen books. Uh, I'd, you know, absolutely known in my world, absolutely known as of my generation, the guy that's doing this particular type of work. But then i i had a I had an odd sensation. I don't know where it le- where it came from. To spend 101 days visiting a local Dartmoor forest. Now you can re- remember, Justin, that I'm a veteran of sitting out in the bush. But the trouble is, if you do anything in life over and over and over again, there'll come a day when you get to the back of the wardrobe and it's just fur coats and and the back of the wardrobe. And the wilderness vigil, to some degree, I knew it so well, I needed to do something else to, to tripwire my own heart again, to tripwire my own imagination. And so I knew a 101-day vigil in the forest was going to do something that I hadn't encountered before. And so through the end of 2019, in the winter of 2020, I was visiting this forest every day primarily to listen. Again, I know how um, that may sound very airy-fairy, but it's just part of my – it's just how I am. I I, I listen to woods because I'm aware that if you go into a forest of oak trees – for the last few hundred years they' just had people looking at them as bits of two by four mm. and looking at them as thinking well, that you'll make a nice boat or a ship <laughs> and so I wanted to go and actually tell stories back to a place so lots of Dartmoor stories, lots of poems and then uh, and I don't want to overlabor this because if I talk about this what happens too much it'll become a story yeah. and in a, you know you could you understand in a way it's so precious. What I can say is, on the last night of the vigil, I went into the very centre of the woods, which there was an old Iron Age fort, and I I had a, a profound, uh, shatteringly beautiful encounter. Uh, now I must emphasise that I hadn't been fasting at this point. I'd had a I'd had a meal. I was content. Between me and you, I was glad the thing was almost over. That mm. was. That was the mood. The mood was, thanks, bye-bye, glad it's done. But I I just, in my own way, I prayed and I said, if there's anything, you know, and I would use the word like creator, you know, Mm -hmm. if if there's anything you you really need me to see or absorb at this moment, please announce it. Please announce it. Uh, And what happened then was I was looking out at the night sky and... I was looking at all, you know, we all know what stars look like. They're these beautiful pale lights. And then suddenly I, my eye caught one that was, it, it, it had a, a, a different set of colors to it. It was all slightly like the aura of Borealis. And I thought, oh, it's getting bigger. That's weird. It's getting bigger. And as I stood there in the forest, I realized, and this whole thing is 15 to 20 seconds. It's incredibly mm-hmm. quick. I realised that the thing is actually coming out of the sky, and is going to land, and you know, not land like a, a UFO, or not land like a, a big chunk of rock, but this strange, beautiful, painted arrow, like a set of colours, just flew out of the darkness and landed about ten foot away from me. Ironically, it landed exactly where I. I usually have my kitchen tent where I'm running <laughs> wilderness vigils. So these days, whenever I'm pasting sandwiches, I'm looking over <laughs> it, you know, where it happened. I don't know what it was. I could, you know, I, I, there's no problem for me in, on the one level, it could be a completely natural phenomena. But on the other, as we learn through the miraculous, the conditions in which it occurs are significant. And the fact that I was up there, after 101 mm-hmm. days, it was the end. I asked for a sign, and I received something that I never could have anticipated. I must say, if you bear in mind what I'd been doing for the last 25 years, I'd been a wilderness rites of passage guide. I'd been living in my tent. I'd seen many strange things out in the woods, but but nothing out of the sky. Mm. And what it did, even then, was it I it was a, like a distinction between the wonders of the earth and the wonders that come from the being that made the earth. Mm. That was the kind of jolt. And then when I, I, you know, I stood up there all night and it wasn't a frightening experience. It wasn't harrowing in any way, it's just been baffling, beautiful. Mm. But then I came home and then over a period of about... I didn't jump straight into the you know, the Christian waters. I was in denial, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd seen, believe it or not, and this is the end of the the really mysterious bit of it. I'd seen as I was falling asleep these nine words: "Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home." Now, I didn't, I didn't like that because it said Genesis, and I also didn't understand it. Time and Genesis—what does that mean? But I. Ironically, lockdown immediately begins. So I have the best part of a year to chew on quite what had happened. And towards the end of that period, dreams came. And they were the kind of dreams that were just unavoidably powerful. And I started to dream of a figure that I couldn't quite see. I had a dream that I was in the trenches. It was like the First World War. And I was with clearly my captain but I couldn't see his face and he looked at my arm and he said you know you've done a good job trying to fix your arm but it's in a terrible state and I looked down and sure enough my arm was like that and he said he said look you've been through something really difficult and I can fix your arm if you want but I have to break it again Mm. Do you want this? Uh, and I looked at my captain. I still couldn't see his face properly, but I said, please fix it. And if it hurt, it only hurt for a second. But from that point onwards, a great flood of dreams started to come. And suddenly this figure that had been, I'd kept at bay academically, I'd kept it at mm. bay theoretically, was suddenly nearer to me than my own heart, and by that time you've had it. I mean, you've absolutely had it. You would be at fool foolishness in the middle of your life to deny, you know, the depth of the invitation that was being offered. But as you understand, Justin, as I'm talking to you now, I I know how to some people how nutty this will sound. Mm. But this is how this is partially how God works. I think.
1: I tell you what, I mean, the 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 phrase from Acts 2, um, your your young men will dream dreams, your old men will see visions. I'm not saying you fall into necessarily either, camp, Martin, but the, <laughs> the point is there's an expectation, isn't there, that, that somehow visionary experiences, dreams are part of the way God communicates. Now, obviously, we live in a very rationalistic culture in the West where people are inclined to say, well, it's just, you know, the cheese you had last night or some sort of internal bias you know um and you know you're you're going to interpret things the way you want to but for you i think it's harder to deny that when you're the one experiencing that because there's something about the power that comes with that 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 if you're in the midst of it is actually difficult to sort of simply say no that was just my imagination that was just you know a neurobiological phenomenon that that sounds to me like the sort of experience you're having there, Martin.
3: I Yes, and I also feel that to some degree one doesn't necessarily cancel out the other. Mm. You know what I mean? All of that can be true at the same time. Mm. Uh, and you're going to be, it'll be what you do with it. Do you curate it? Do you look after it? Do you, do you protect that experience and watch it grow? Or do you put it on the shelf, Mark, strange spiritual experiences? Mm. And I elected not to do that. But I do think that I had been prepared for about 25 years for that encounter. The right relationship to nature was established, the degree of reading in which I could probably interpret something like that. But no amount of book smarts makes something like that happen. There's no amount of theoretical knowledge that can pull a light out of the sky, um, yeah, so yeah. so I've you know you 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 are aware that on one hand you're going to be you know a laughing stock you'll you'll lose credibility in all sorts of ways and of course that's to, to a degree that happened, but the as far the last time I checked, you know Jesus wasn't standing around saying come with me everything's going to be easy, uh, and there'll be an insurance policy. He says come find out that I knew that um, I knew, yeah, and so that in a way. Seemed like the pearl of great price
1: Yeah So the phrase that you went to bed That came to your mind Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home Yeah um, Did you connect that then With your Christian upbringing Was that the sense that You were being drawn back to that story That you'd sort of put aside As as something too domesticated and tame And yet was coming back in a new way At this phase in your life in, in the end, it wasn't the Baptist church, though, that you found your, your Christian home in. Do you want to tell us about sort of where you have found that, that spiritual home?
3: I will. I will. Uh, so, you know, just to finish, really, I, I came out of the woods. I'd gone in for 101 days, expected to become, I would say, wedded to the wild. Mm. And I came out wedded to Christ. And what happened over the next year was I realized both of these realities faced each other they faced each other you know I've called it the mossy face of Christ so then what happens is I knew it would not be I, I I felt and I feel that by and large Christians do really need to find a church you need to find your your room in the many mansions in the many mansion place and so I looked around and in the end actually I met a lot of a lot of Christians with great hearts, and I learned to recognize Christians uh, instinctively. Uh, there's a feeling about them. I, I call them worker bees, and I know that's a big part of what's going on in my own life. Is Between me and you, I, I've, been, I've had a fairly highfalutin conversion. It's mm-hmm. been quite public. I've met mm-hmm. all sorts of folks that are really at the cutting edge of many interesting things. But make no mistake, Christ, where the rubber meets the road with Christianity as far as I can tell is down in the granular detail of how I relate to other people it's am I really am I really showing up or not or am I just you know on the surface of things so in other words, it was kind of important that I didn't leave everything open to my own interpretation 24 hours a day mm-hmm. because that's not that's not healthy for me yeah it's not healthy. So obviously, I I then ended up in a place where no one in my family really knew much about, which is Eastern Orthodoxy. I went into a church, uh, just as they were uh, beginning something called Divine Liturgy, and I suddenly located all the missing elements that had been uh, seemingly not present in the Christianity of my youth. Now, Uh, and I think we've talked about this before, you and I, a big thing in my family's evolution was the charismatic movement. Mm. And the charismatic movement was was big news in the 70s and the 80s, and before and after. And it it, it had always touched me. It had always touched me. Um, But when I went into the divine liturgy, I realized it was like a taste in my mouth. I thought, Oh, that that presence is here again, this holy spirit is here, but this time, through the decorum and the formality of the divine liturgy, it has this incredible runway into mm. the room mm. uh, it's not quite as dramatic round the <laughs> sides people are kind of falling off their chairs in the way I was used to it and enjoyed yeah but the the voltage the voltage was the same, so I had it was a I've often said in my my work, wildness is the dance partner of discipline. Wildness is that you need certain choreographed steps. And for me, orthodoxy provides that it's bigger than me. It's far older than me. It's very substantial. Much of it. I struggle with, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I'm aware that I am, I'm really up against something of tremendous substance. Um, so the next year I spent just showing up at church, no one would have a clue or interest in what mm-hmm. I do outside of church, none. Mm-hmm. That's, that's humbling. yeah. You know, that's humbling. You're just there doing the, doing mm-hmm. the kettles, doing the tea and yeah. the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'd just been on an enormous tour, but just before I set off on that tour, I was received in. I'd already been baptized, mm-hmm. but I was received into the Orthodox Church, and that's
1: where I find myself now. Such an interesting journey you've taken there. There's something I suspect about the nature of the Orthodox Church. It's, I, I suppose the fact that it does major on the kind of the imminence of God. Uh, it isn't so concerned perhaps with that sort of analytical sort of side. It, I'm sure it has its analytical side, but but that the, that maybe comes through in the Protestant tradition, in the Reformed traditions, Baptists and so on. Uh, and obviously the fact is very ancient. It goes right back really to... The genesis of the church, um, I guess stepping into an ancient imaginative stream kind of suits you. Your 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 the the way your mind and soul works, Martin. I think it, I think
3: it does. Uh, I, I'm having to come to terms with, for example, when we read from the Bible, it's chanted. It's not mm. really read in the way that right. that the post-Reformation Christians are familiar with, and I like reading the Bible you know in my own voice with my own twists Mm. and turns and that doesn't roll in orthodoxy and it's not going to roll in orthodoxy because with orthodoxy the clue is in the name yes the clue is in the name uh i have a joke how many how many uh how many orthodox christians does it take to change a light bulb change (laughs) there'll be no change uh So, yes, sometimes it's difficult because I have a kind of improvisational spirit. I do. Mm. Um, But the liturgy itself, interesting things to note about it. Effectively, it's a sung theology. So Mm. we're singing rather than reading. Or if we are reading, we're chanting. The, The liturgy itself is a very, very slow form of dance that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you do feel that you've moved from. Uh, here's a. This will sound a rather highfalutin analogy, but it's worth making because we have the time to do it. Mm. In poetry, there's many types of poetry, but there's one type called lyric, and there's one type called epic. I grew up with lyric Christianity, not epic. Mm. Now, what that means is lyric poems have a lot of I in. They have a lot of back rubbing. They have a lot of, I feel this, he's in my heart. Jesus is my friend. He's here. I'm tired. Please look after me. That kind of thing. It's very personable, mm-hmm. and I like it. But epic poetry pays far less attention to the I statement and lifts you out of that completely into this much bigger drama. Classicism is, is epic poetry. And I think what I found in orthodoxy is the little I entered the big we at that moment. And that's just something about the West in general that I'm exhausted by, you know, the kind of uh, addiction to the confessional almost. Yeah. Uh, so actually, for me, it, it, it regulates my ego. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in orthodoxy is a real distinction between they, what they call passion and virtue. And the world we live in these days is pretty good at passion, you know, pretty good at desire. But virtue, to make a covenant with limit, to understand what that looks like, those are the kind of things that I'm going through with orthodoxy. To to distill it, finally, one more thing is, although I may look like a a reasonable human being, I'm actually really a 12th century chivalric knight. I always have been. (laughs) And orthodoxy is a code, It's a way of behaving in the world. You can draw it with a line. It's not massively ambiguous all the time, but there are areas where they just say
1: it is a mystery. And I like that. Yeah, There's that combination. I was going to say that that picture you paint of the, the epic versus lyric poetry, I think even within some Western Protestant traditions, people are starting to key into the fact that some of that kind of very individualistic versions of Christianity, where it's me, Jesus, and, you know, me getting to heaven and so on. I think thinkers like N.T. Wright and others have, have helped to actually say, no, you're actually part of an epic thing, this big story of God, this big movement. And, and it's so helpful, I think sometimes to be reminded that it doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around God and the story God is painting. And, it helps to put often our disappointments and failures into perspective as well, I find, because if, if the story isn't all about me, then that makes sense of the fact that I'm not always going to feel like I'm at the center of this story. You know? I know. You know, as
3: you were talking, Justin, I was thinking about Genesis and I was thinking about this image of us as creatures of mud and holy breath. Mm. And I think that as Christians, we run the risk of forgetting that. Uh, that actually we're this uh, I think the the mud the holy breath that's the part of us that is wired for Christian mythology and the more culturally we take our cues from a society that has active hostility to us and has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus um, I think we have to be careful like you I'm sure I'm a great fan of Tom Holland's book Dominion mm. however I think whilst it is true that, yes, on a secular level, Christianity and many good things exist in the West because of a kind of, um, you you know, a Christian influence, I think it would be a foolishness to believe that as a culture that we are essentially Christian at this point. I don't think that. And you know as well as I do that Christ is always talking about cleaning the inside of the cup. Mm. We're not doing that. We're cleaning the outside of the cup, you know, civic duty. But if we keep neglecting the inside of the cup, then I think Christianity in its most
1: fundamental form uh, is in real jeopardy. Yeah. I want to come back to talking about that and others who have had similar journeys to you in recent years as well. Before we get to that, let's go back to someone who's sort of been mentioned indirectly a couple of times in this conversation. You mentioned Aslan that idea you had of him bursting through the the windows of the Baptist Church. And then you even referenced, you know, the the wardrobe and the fur coats uh, and so on. So Lewis obviously has, I presume, had some influence on your thinking and, (laughs) you know, your imagination over the years. It's very striking to me that Lewis had a perhaps not dissimilar conversion experience himself when he, you know, Yeah, he was an expert in ancient mythology, literature. He found uh, just an enormous depth of missioning and joy in reading those stories. And yet he was also a very rational, intellectual person. And when he did go... Well, he sort of had, as you I'm sure know, Martin, a sort of two-stage conversion. Firstly, from atheism to theism. He sort of just became convinced at an intellectual level there must be a sort of moral lawgiver in the universe. But his conversion to Christianity, obviously, was, was immensely helped by his friendship with J.R.R. R. Tolkien. They had this famous walk around Addison Walk, uh, the back of Magdalen College, where Tolkien apparently helped Lewis to see that Jesus may be regarded as the true myth, that all those other myths that so captured Lewis's imagination actually pointed towards something that really happened. I, I, I wondered whether that sort of was in any way analogous to your experience, uh, given your own background in mythology and so on.
3: Yes, of course. I mean, that's it's uh, as as they would say, it's a no brainer, really, uh, in, in the sense that Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, Barfield, Charles Williams, mm-hmm. others, there is a very real, dynamic English Christian mythopoetic tradition that goes way back into the last century and beyond. And so, yes, of course I related to that. Um, I mentioned this earlier on with the Gospels. Something happens there where you find the promise of many myths all over the world arriving uncomfortably and dramatically in extraordinary form, uh, you know, in this, this, this area for 33 years and then out. And so, yeah, I do, of course I relate to Lewis. I've been thinking recently actually that it's the fate of any Christian writer that working today, that at some point you'll have an idea and then you will realize that Lewis had that idea and expressed it better about 80 years ago.
1: (laughs) What a delight it was to chat with Martin Shaw. I think both he and Paul Kingsnorth have been on C.S. Lewis-like journeys in their own ways. And that particular interview was first recorded for the Maybe God podcast. You can find links to Martin and the full conversation with the show notes of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed these fuller dialogues with two fascinating examples of the storytellers and poets who are being drawn towards Christ in the surprising rebirth of belief in God. I'll be continuing to bring these kinds of long form conversations about surprising conversions in between the acts of our documentary series in future weeks. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com where you can also order the book or even get a signed copy. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust. Also, a special shout out on this episode to Dave Mattox, Chris Heasley and Robert Lee White for generous support of this show that's helped us to continue bringing you these weekly episodes so far. But as we come towards the end of the year, your support really will help us to continue bringing quality podcasts, videos and more resources for thinking faith in the new year. I'm passionate about bringing the Christian and non-Christian world into conversation and your support makes a huge difference. You can give through Patreon, PayPal or tax-deductible giving from the USA. The links are all with today's show. Coming up next time... This worried me more and more and it was kind of like, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm clearly not, as I'd vaguely imagined, the heir of the Greeks and the Romans in any way, really. And I began to realise that actually, in almost every way, I am Christian. History Maker. We return to our documentary series format as we find out why Tom Holland changed his mind about Jesus and looking at the story that shaped our world. That'll be coming your way in two weeks' time as we take a short break over New Year. As ever, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us, share it on social media to help others to discover this series. Plus, you can get the next episode you just heard a clip from right now when you support at justinbrierly.com. The link again is with today's show. Your support makes a huge difference as we head into 2024. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and see you next time.